The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12. The word of God speaks to us like this. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the very word of God to us. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Good morning. My name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here, and if we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to get to know you and shake your hand and, and, uh, and yeah, just love to, to meet you. Um, this is uh, not a day that we, probably many of us, are aware of because we don't normally, uh, in, in evangelical spaces, uh, think about church calendar quite uh, as much as some, uh, some movements in Christendom have, but Pentecost Sunday is today. And what that is is a remembrance in the, in the, in the calendar of the time when, the, when God himself came in the, uh, as the Holy Spirit and descended on the upper room and filled the disciples for, for power and for mission. That when Jesus left this earth after his resurrection, as he was raised out of the tomb, he told his disciples, don't do anything until you're filled with power by the Holy Spirit. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And they did. And 50 days later, the Holy Spirit descended. And they, the Holy Spirit descended in a borrowed room among a people that were in desperate need of the Spirit, and that feels familiar because we're in a borrowed room and we're in desperate need of the Spirit. So I'm going to pray that the, that the Spirit of God, like he did then, would actually descend to form us, to teach us, to speak to us, and to actually lead us in the way of Jesus. Uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. It means a lot. Uh, to us that you're here. Uh, there's no question off limits. There's no skepticism to get you pushed out the door. So uh, if there's anything that comes up as we're talking today that, that raised questions or stuff, we'd love to talk to you about it. And so um, come up afterwards and I'd love to talk to you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me and let's dive in to 1 Peter and see what he has to say to us today. God, would you speak to us? Just as you descended in Pentecost, would you, would you descend to us today? Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Would you equip us and encourage us? Would you strengthen us? Would you teach us? Would you form us? Would you make us into the church that you have called us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are new with us or haven't been around the last couple of weeks, we're coming out of four weeks in the book of Jude. The book of Jude's a short book, 25 verses, but it packs a punch. It's the last, uh, next to last book in your Bible, and it really delves with what does it look like to... <coughs> 
to engage in life as a follower of Jesus in the midst of the conflict that comes with being a follower of Jesus in this world. And Jude dealt with some really hard topics and some really beautiful things, and, and, it, was a, and it was a great uh, couple of weeks in the book of Jude. And as Bryce mentioned, we're stepping into a new series starting next week called Rhythms of Grace. What we want to do is, as a church, we want to move towards these practices and rhythms that will actually form our affection, shape our heart as we follow Jesus. And we're going to talk about those questions of prayer and fasting, prayer, uh, times uh, in scripture and, and other kinds of spiritual disciplines that really form us and shape us as disciples. But, but as I was thinking about the bridge between Jude and this, I really was drawn to the book of 1 Peter. And in many ways, what the book of 1 Peter is doing, Peter is talking to a church that is experiencing much of the same things that, that Jude, the churches that Jude is writing to are experiencing, but he's also giving them handles and giving them invitations to move towards Jesus very intentionally as a people of God. And so what I really hope is that today we're able to kind of bridge between Jude and this series on Rhythms of Grace by looking at a couple of key metaphors that Paul or that Peter gives us in his letter, 1 Peter. Now, before we get there, I want to just stop and, and, and mention the fact that metaphors have a lot of power that sometimes we're unaware of. The metaphors are not, not, are not simply images that are meant to just describe or define, but they actually, they actually um, they, they, they do much more than that. They give us a different kind of way of seeing. They give us a different kind of vision. It's it's, it's uh, pretty obvious when you read through the Bible, both New Testament and Old Testament, how often God uses metaphor to explain things, to teach us. He uses metaphor to explain himself, to describe himself, and he uses it to describe, to help us know ourselves better. Uh, and, and Jesus particularly does this a lot. You, know, you go back at the, the Gospels and look, and Jesus will call himself a shepherd. Well, that's weird because he wasn't a shepherd. <laughs> He didn't raise sheep for a living. He didn't cart them off to auction. He didn't do any of that. But he calls himself a shepherd. Why? Because there's actually an image that invites us into a different way of seeing who he is in our relationship to him. He calls himself a door. Also weird and awkward, right? I'm a door. Well, nice for you. Like, what, what, what is a door? Well, a door is a way into something else, an entrance into something new. In other words, the image gives us a way of seeing who Jesus is in a way that we might have not before. He does the same thing to us. He calls us sheep, which, in case you're uh, not aware, is not a compliment. Uh, sheep are dumb, and they smell. But he calls us sheep. Why? Because he's actually trying to un help us understand ourselves in relationship to him. He calls us salt. Also weird. He calls us light in dark places. What do these images mean? What do these metaphors mean? What they do is they don't just describe who we are. They actually bring us into a new way of seeing. Seeing God, seeing ourselves, seeing the world. And there's a way in, in, in which these, 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 um, these metaphors kind of move us along. They invite us towards something. They give us a new way to think. And they give us a new way to see. And, and this is what Peter is doing right here in this letter to the churches in Asia Minor at that time, is to give them some images that I think are going to be really helpful for us in this room this morning as well. And before I get any go much further, I just want to give credit where credit is due. A lot of my thinking along this has been shaped over the last six months by, uh, by a theologian uh, named Stefan Poss. 
guy works out of Amsterdam, and he's been doing a lot of work about what does it mean to be the church, a faithful church, in the midst of a world that is radically rejecting the way of Jesus and radically secularizing. And so he has done a lot of work on here, and he points back to 1 Peter, and it really brought uh, things to my mind that I think will help us this morning. And what he singles in on and what he pushes in on are two particular metaphors that Peter uses. The first is that of exiles, and the second is that of priests. The first is of exiles, the second is of priests. Let's look at the first couple of verses for 1 Peter, because we get the first one right out of the gate. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are, listen to this, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's weird, isn't it, that he starts a letter to these churches scattered across all these different cities and he calls them elect exiles. I don't know the last time you called somebody an elect exile. You probably, well, you probably didn't. Regardless of whether we would or wouldn't, we might get a weird look in return. But there, there's a lot of power in this, this, uh, in, in this language. What does Peter mean by exile? Well, what an exile is is somebody who is in a in a country or in a place that is not their home, right? And that's. But this idea of being exile really brings out two ideas that I think are central to what Peter is saying. First is this: exiles are different. Or maybe to put it a little more crudely, they're peculiar. Exiles kind of stick out. I don't know if, uh, if you have uh, spent much time in another country or another culture. Um, I, I got a chance to visit uh, Taipei, Taiwan, a number of years ago, and it was beautiful, and I loved it. and It was fascinating, and I also felt completely out of place. And everybody there noticed he didn't belong here. There was this sense in which I was different. I didn't speak the language. I looked a little different. Uh, I, I, I was walking up with my phone, uh, with my Google Translate, trying to figure out if this uh, establishment I was about to walk into was going to serve me sushi or was going to do my laundry. I wasn't sure. I don't, I don't know the customs. I don't know the, I don't know the food. I tried it, most of it. There was a few things I didn't try. But, but I, I felt different. And if you were to ask somebody on the street, they would have said, he's different. There was some peculiarity. I, I was an exile in a sense. I didn't belong. I loved it though. I want to go back. There's a sense in which for exiles, you're not home. You know when you feel comfortable, when you feel at home is this, this sense of, I, I, I don't feel out of, uh, out, uh, out of order. I feel aligned. This idea of exiles comes with the idea that we are different. The second idea is not just that we're different, but that we're powerless. Now by powerless, I don't mean weak. I mean, we are not in control, as in we're inhabiting a space that we don't get to define the boundaries around. We're, we're in a space, we're in a place, a country, a culture in which we don't call the shots. We're powerless to actually change this. But he also says, not just that we're exiles, but that we're elect exiles. In other words, while we're in a place that is not our home, and we are different and we are powerless, we are chosen by him and loved by him. So our identity is not in where we are at the moment. Our identity is in who we are connected to. 
Peter will pick up this idea of exile and merge it with another word, sojourners. We, we heard that in our text just a second ago, and we're going to talk about it more in a second. Sojourners, this idea of we're traveling through a place that isn't home. And this idea of exiles and sojourners is the way, the predominant way in which the Bible talks about the people of God from the beginning. That Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, and when they sin and rebel against God, they are pushed out, they are exiled from this promised place, this garden of hope. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the descendants are navigating through places in which are not really home for them. And they end up in a country, living in a country of Egypt. That's a different culture, a different place. They're, they're different. They're in exile. A number of generations later, God rescues Israel out of Egypt and leads them through a wilderness, once again, sojourners not at home. Does make sense? This is a regular repeating pattern in the scripture. Matter of fact, if we go to the New Testament, we see this with Jesus as well. Jesus, who actually created the world, is in a place that's not... He's like an exile here. He's not, he's rejected by the rulers and by the public. That in many ways he was different. And while he had all the power in the world, I mean, this is the, this is, this is the, the one who speaks and Saturn gets rings. Like he's got power, but he doesn't exercise power to crush. He actually lays his life down. And then if we read through the Bible or the New Testament, we see the early church was often facing persecution, opposition, and rejection. Why? Because they weren't at home. They were in exile. And friends, if you're not aware, that hasn't changed. The church didn't all of a sudden just find a place in the world that was home. What Peter said to the churches in in Bithynia and Cappadocia, he would say to Yukon, you're exiles. You're exiles. You are living in a place in which you are different. There's nothing new about us living in a place that is actually at odds with our faith. That when we live in the world as followers of Jesus, we are not walking in the way of the world. We're walking in a different kind of way. And inherently, there will be conflict. Inherently, we're going to live in a world that has very different, radically different notions of what ethics and morality are than, than those of us as Christ followers see. We're going to navigate a world in which there are radically different interpretations of what is the good and what is the good life. There are going to be radically different ideas of who is authority, who calls the shots, different notions of what it means to pursue joy and different notions of what it means to suffer. This is what I think Peter is getting at here in chapter 2. I want us to look back at a couple of the verses that we just read. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and, there's the word again, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's this phrase that we hear either used or, or kind of the concept picked up on Scripture uh, of being in the world but not of the world, right? We live in a world, but we're not of the world. That, that we're, as followers of Jesus, we're not actually following the way of the world. Those are different kinds of paths. 
And I think it's really important for us to stop and recognize that even as much freedom as we, as we experience in Canadian County, Oklahoma, USA, as much religious freedom as we have, and as much cultural Christianity that dominates this place, we can feel like this is our home, but I want to remind you, the world is not our home, and the world is actually not neutral. The way of the world is against the way, of the, the way of Jesus. He says here that the passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. He, he's saying that the desires of the world, the desires that come from this world are actually in conflict with the way of Jesus and it's there to destroy your soul. Those are sobering words. Those are sobering words. And as followers of Jesus, we are exiles here. We live in a world in which we are different and we are powerless. We are different and we are powerless. But we also live with the promise that while this place isn't home right now, one day it will be. One of the promises of Christian theology is that God himself will come down, well, Jesus will return and will remake this world to be what it was originally intended to be. He will recreate this place and make it home. In other words, it's not home now, but it will be. We're sojourners. We're sojourners. We're traveling through a place that's not home until we get to a place that is home. C.S. Lewis says this this way in Mere Christianity. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. A couple, chapter, or a couple paragraphs later, he picks it up again and he says this, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. What Lewis is talking about here is the, is the fact that there is a fundamental conflict between the way of the world and the way of Jesus but we are longing for a time in which God will remake this place to be like it ought to be. Now, if our only picture of what it means to be Christians in this world were, were that of exile, I think there are two potential uh, ways we could go wrong. The first would be to respond that we're exiled, so what we're going to do is we're going to retreat and we're going to hide, and we're just going to kind of cover up until things get better or different. That would be one response, a passivity, a, retrit a, a retrenchment. The other is that we might actually fight, feeling our powerlessness that we feel like we have to control, and so we actually grasp at the reins of power. That we actually move in, not as exiles, but as invaders trying to take over and to dominate. And I think both of those are not what Scripture would call us to. Both of those are against what Jesus is calling us to. Peter calls us to a radically different thing, and he does it by giving us another metaphor. If one metaphor is that of exiles, the next is that of priests. Look back at 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be, listen to this, a holy priesthood. He's saying we are being built by God to be a holy priesthood in order to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He continues on in verse 9. But you are a, a chosen race, here it, again, here it is again, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
You see, though we are exiles in a world that we are at times at odds with, what Peter calls us to is not, as a, is not to move towards the world with a posture of cursing, but with a desire to bless. The idea of being priests brings with it not that we approach the world in order to curse the world, but that we actually come along to bless the world, to be a blessing, to bring mercy as we've received mercy. Now notice he talks about this as being, that this whole idea of us being a priesthood is being built on a stone that was rejected, speaking of Jesus, that has become our foundation. In other words, just the way that Jesus was rejected but did not revile in return, we are often rejected but we don't revile in return. Just as he was rejected, we will be rejected. That may not look the same. I hope none of us are actually crucified on two pieces of wood. But the rejection at one level will still be the same. But we are not to respond to that with reviling, but with blessing. I think this idea of priesthood really centers on this idea of mediation, of being a mediator, to being, to being one who represents the world to God and represents God to the world. You see, this is what happened in the early priesthood. The priesthood actually stood as a, as a representative of God to the people and as a representative of the nation of Israel to God. They would bring prayers and sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people. And they would also speak what God would say to the people from God himself. Well, in much the same way, we are called to be priests, to stand as representing the world to God and representing God to the world. Well, how do we do that? Well, at, at least at, at the fear of reductionism, being reductionistic, I want us to at, or stop and recognize that part of the way that we represent the world to God is through prayer. It's exactly what Chad led us through a while ago in intercession, that we actually plead for mercy on behalf of the world that needs the mercy that only God provides. See, prayer is not some trite religious practice that we do just because we're bored. Prayer is actually asking the sovereign God of the universe to move on behalf of those in need. That there's actually action and power when the church of God prays to their God on behalf of the world. God hears our prayers and moves in accordance with those prayers. That we are to represent the world to God through prayer. But we are also to represent God to the world. Around Frontline, you'll hear us use these two phrases pretty regularly. Gospel proclamation and kingdom demonstration. Gospel proclamation that we need to be a people that are speaking the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. We need to be a people that proclaim this good news. We sh we're just sharing good news. I mean, if you go to a, a really good restaurant, what, do you, what are you longing to do when you get home? It's to tell somebody about it. When you have good news, you want to share it. That we are, to, we are to be a people that are quick to share good news. But we are also people to demonstrate a new way of living. Because let me just assure you that when you are rejected and instead of reviling you bless, the world will take notice. That when you love when the world says you should hate, they will notice. And it's a way of bringing blessing from God to the world to say there is a better way to live. Being priests, we mediate between God and the world in profound ways. So, Jeff, that was kind of heady. Metaphors and such. 
and ideas, and I guess I could chew on those ideas, but I don't know what to do with them. What does this look like on Tuesday afternoon? And I think it's a question we've got to step into, right? Because metaphors, if, if all they are is these ideas that kind of float out there, then what good do they do? But actually, these are, what I said earlier about metaphors are not just descriptive images. They're actually invitations that create momentum and movement as we move towards that image. What, but what Paul calls us, or what Peter calls us to is not to, to he's not saying, he, he, he's not describing even all the times what we are. Sometimes he's inviting us to become something we're not. He's inviting us to move towards these images of being exiles and priests. But like I said, what does that look like on Tuesday afternoon? What's it look like on Friday evening? How do we actually move towards these images? I think, first Peter, uh, I think Peter in First in Peter 4 gives us a few ways to move towards us. Now, I want to say, as we move towards this, I also want to say part of the reason we're stepping into this Rhythms of Grace series is to actually move towards this. What does it actually look like to be formed in the way of Jesus, to actually be, to, to see our affections grow for him, to learn how to navigate as Christ followers in this world. But I think there are four things that Peter gives us here that I want to draw our attention to, to say, as we move towards being exiles and being priests, I think these four things are things we step towards in order to move towards these images. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we're going to see what I think are the, is the first thing Peter calls us to, and that is to be a people of discernment. Look at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, listen to this, with the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And he continues in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and, what does he say? Sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. You see, when we hear the word discernment, I don't know what comes to your mind. What often comes to my mind are those people that pick out all the bad things and want to tell everybody about them. This person's a really bad person. They say a really bad thing. You shouldn't do this. Discerning is, I'm telling you all the things that are bad. What discernment actually is, is learning to discern and see the good. The discernment is actually not just learning to recognize what's good, but actually learning to love what is good. Discernment is, is seen as, as recognizing good, and, and when you recognize good, you'll recognize bad. Like if you recognize a really, really good steak dinner, and then you go to McDonald's, you're going to go, we've got good and we got bad. You're going to discern the bad, but you discern the bad by learning how to love the good, right? There's a fundamental difference between Bach and Justin Bieber. One is good, one I'll let you come to your own conclusions, but I think one's up here and one's not. Discernment, if I learn to love the good, Bach, then I will learn to recognize the inferior. Discernment is about cultivating a, a, a view of the good and a desire of the good. But here's what happens. Sorry to all the Bieberites out there. Believers, is that what they're called? Huh? Believers? There we go. <laughs> I lost my spot in my notes. <clears throat> Here's why this is hard. Here's why discernment is hard. Because we are constantly being bombarded by messages from the world that tell us what good is and it's not good. 
Now, I'm not a guy that's like a Luddite that's saying, hey, don't, don't you know, cancel all your, all your media subscriptions. Don't ever watch Netflix. Don't ever watch any shows. Don't ever do anything. Go be a hermit and do nothing but read old dead theologians. Not what, that's, not what I'm, that's not what I'm advocating for. But we need to recognize that sometimes the things that we are watching and the things that we are listening to are subtly shifting the way we see the world in ways that are doing deep damage to us. Sometimes the the messages that we receive from the social media accounts that we follow, the conversations we have, the media that we consume is slightly adjusting how we see what's good in the world. And we start to actually love things that are not good. Discernment is learning to recognize when those things don't line up with the way of Jesus. Discernment is learning to recognize the good and the bad, to to recognize. That doesn't mean I'm never going to watch the thing, but I'm learning to discern the thing for what it is because our hearts are susceptible. We are bombarded day in and day out with, this is the vision of the good life. This is what you ought to do if you want to be happy. And let me just say, what the world says sounds good to the ear, but it will lead to death. I've watched it happen over and over and over and over again. I've had friends in the last couple of years get allured by the sound of what sounded really good from the world saying, this is where to find the good life. And their life is in shambles because they walked away from Jesus to follow the lure of the song of the world. Discernment, to be a people of discernment is to learn to love the good so that we can recognize when something is off. We need discernment. Because I think uh, especially in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a space like the one that we inhabit here in Canadian County is we can tend to think that the world's really not that bad and they really, they really kind of like us, sort of, and we can have a little bit of our cake and eat it too and we can walk in the way of Jesus and the way of the world and everything's going to be okay. And what we end up doing is trying to navigate life to lower the tension between life in the world and life by the Spirit. We want to make it easy. Lower the tension, lower the temperature, just have a little bit of both, and maybe we can skate by. And I think Stefan Poss says it really well when he says this. He goes, we generally look for a performance of our Christianity that creates as little tension as possible with the rest of our lives. That we tend to try to find the easy way to have a little bit of both, and it won't work. It won't work. What we need is to be a people of discernment. We need new eyes and we need new appetites. We need to see things that are good and we need to learn to love the things that are good. God has a vision of the good life. He made you. He knows what that is. He knows how you are built. He knows how you function. He is here for your good. His way is good, which leads to this second point, that we are to be, I think, to move towards these images, these metaphors, we need to be, we need to cultivate being, becoming a people of discernment, and we need to be a people of holiness. Holiness. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. 
but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way that God does. Let me just be as crystal clear as I can. How you live your life, whether it's in public or whether it's in private, matters. We have been given, in, in our culture, in our day, we have been given a vision of Christianity that just says, go do whatever you want. God's going to forgive it anyway. You don't really got to mess with it. And it's a lie. God will forgive you. That's not, that's not a question. God's not sitting there going, well, you got three strikes and then you're out. That's not the way that God operates. But neither is he lax about the way of holiness. He calls us to be holy as he's holy. He didn't give us a list of moral rules because he was bored one day or we were bored one day. He gave us, he gave us boundaries around our life because it's how we are built to function. If God, if, if God says, don't drink arsenic, there's a reason. It will kill you. I want my freedom. I'm going to drink arsenic. Well, that's stupid. The holiness of God that he calls us to is because he wants us to experience life. And the things he says no to are death to us. The things he tells us not to do are poison for our soul. Do we trust him? Do we trust him that his way is good? Do we trust him that the holy life is actually the way to the good life? Because it is. For to be a people of of discernment and of holiness, we also need to be a people of love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles from God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me just say this briefly. Love is not weak. Love is hard, but it is what we are called to do. I am not called to view the world, though the world may reject me. I'm not, it is not okay for me to look at them and despise them, push them away and hate them. I am called to love. Jesus says, love even your enemy. The one that mocks you the one that reviles you, the one that doesn't understand you, the one that hurts you, you are to love. And he calls us here both to love the brothers and sisters in the community and to love the people in the world. This is our call. To be exiles is not to be a people of hatred. To be exiles and to be priests is to be a people who love the people that God loves. And lastly, we are to be a people of perseverance. Look at verse, uh, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
But it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As exiles... Our way in this world as followers of Jesus will come into conflict with the world around. It will. It's not a maybe. It will happen. There will be times when, and it may not be all the time, to be in exile doesn't mean that everybody thinks you're weird all the time. But it does mean, and Jesus promised, that there will be people that will come, and if you, as you follow me, they will mock you, they will ridicule you, they will abuse you, they will hurt you. I don't think he says this is a pity party. He just says this to go, hey, the way is not going to be all that smooth, but neither is any path through life. We will face resistance. There are times in which you will face opposition. You'll be reviled, you'll be mocked, you'll be rejected. As we follow Jesus in the world, some in the world will not understand and they will say things That hurt. Sometimes it won't be the words that somebody says that hurt. It's sometimes it's going to be life's circumstances, that there's suffering, that there's pain that we walk through. But here's the thing. What God calls us to, what Peter's calling us to here, is a life of perseverance through suffering and through revilement. In other words, we're going to follow Jesus when the, when the road is smooth, and we're going to follow him when it's rocky because we trust that he is with us. Last week, Derek led us through the end of Jude to look at the fact that it is God who keeps us. We don't just keep ourselves. God keeps us. And that's our hope. Our hope is that we can be a people of perseverance because we are held by the one who elected us, the one who called us, the one who chose us. So we want to be, as exiles and priests in this world, we want to be a people of discernment. We want to be a people of holiness. We want to be a people of love, and we want to be a people of perseverance. How do we do that? I don't know. It's above my pay grade. (laughs) And I say that kind of like, kind of joking and kind of not, but I say it because it's hard. Like, I don't don't always know. There are moments I I feel the, the desire of the world and the desires of the flesh pull me away from the way of Jesus, and I just want to look like the world because I don't want to stick out. Or I just want to look like the world because that looks fun over there. That looks exciting. That actually looks like it has life. And I, I feel my heart drawn that direction. There are times, and I'd like to say it was a decade ago, but I think it was like last week, in which I didn't want to be a priest to the world. I didn't want to love. I actually didn't want to bring blessing. I wanted to curse. I wanted to blast. I wanted to crush. I wanted to grasp control. But actually the invitation of Jesus to be exiles and to be priests is to be different, to walk in the way of Jesus, and to be people that bless.
over the next couple of months as we step through this rhythm, Rhythms of Grace series, I want to invite you to do some deep work over this series. Chad's going to tee it up next week. But I want us to lean in over, over the coming months as we work together through these disciplines because here's what these disciplines are doing. They're forming us into the kind of people who are exiles and who are priests. These are, these are processes. These are, these, are, these are rhythms. These are, these are uh, habits that we build into our life that remind us of what's good and that shift our eyes and our affections towards the good. And I think that as we do this together as a people, we will begin to look like and begin to move in the direction of being exiles and priests the way that Peter calls us to be. Would you pray with me?